0: This is Limitless Possibility. I'm Luc Olivier Dumeblé.
1: And I'm Yannick Manga.
0: And I heard that I might be learning some quite interesting stuff tonight.
1: Yeah, so tonight we're going to be talking about Japanese home computers from the 80s and 90s. Oh, wow. Okay. That's going to be. Very obscure and useless knowledge. Okay. My The polite version of that is interesting, but I'll <laughs> go on with that.
0: And before we start on this interesting topic, I know that you have some follow-up.
1: Yeah, so first of all, uh, I came down to the laundry room to start recording and I found like half a wheel from the swivel chair that I used last year. So it appears we have sacrificed yet another seating mechanism uh, last week after recording and another chair has died. So I am hoping that my ass does not destroy yet another chair this week because that would be catastrophic
0: hopefully you won't die again
1: yeah so uh, we're slowly starting to run out of chairs in the house so i'm really hoping that this one survives um in more serious follow-up um a couple episodes ago we were talking about editing the podcast on the ipad and i was saying that it was a little bit frustrating that uh ferrite which was the audio editor that i was contemplating using to edit the podcast um it had a feature to strip silence from the Uh, audio clips but it did not actually tighten the audio together and lo and behold last week ferrite got an update and it now has a tighten feature for users of the paid dlc and it automatically compacts audio together making editing our podcast much more viable on ios Uh, so you don't have to hear long silences when we are unclear about what skype is doing (laughs) Um, so that's neat Uh, and i will be trying it on this episode so hopefully this episode sounds pretty good um next up is a little bit of follow-up on playstation neo slash graphics cards of course uh as you know we love to talk about graphics cards on this podcast uh, oh, whoa, whoa,
0: whoa, <laughs> whoa, 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 whoa 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 you love to talk about graphic cards
1: yeah so i'm a little bit obsessed with digital foundry's youtube channel and they talk a lot about graphics cards so i relay the news to like i view when it's relevant to our interests and this time and I will... b-
0: maybe before you continue just have a smaller uh, like sideways to go um funny story i think they are the only youtube videos you send me these days
1: i mean the a lot of the other youtube channels that i follow are not that interesting these days because not much is going on so yeah but they there i watch every single one even if they're about games i don't care about or about graphics cards which i literally don't give a shit about because i don't have a pc um but there's some interesting knowledge in there uh once in a while and this week, the interesting knowledge is about the AMD Radeon RX 480, uh, which probably sounds like a load of garbage to you if you don't know anything about graphics cards. But let me explain. Uh, a couple of episodes ago in our follow-up, we were talking about how AMD was going to make special graphics cards targeting the low end to make people able to buy uh, graphics cards for VR for much less than the current prices. And the RX 480, 480 is the first one of those. And coincidentally, it also seems to be the same approximate specs is what we're going to be seeing in the PlayStation Neo, which is going to be coming out God knows when. Uh, We only know that it exists for real now because Sony confirmed it during E3. They just didn't say when it's coming out, which is sort of, okay, sure. Um, But what's really, really interesting about this graphics card is it's $250, which is a reasonable price for a graphics card. And basically any of the games that were running at 1080p and 30 frames per second on PS4 this can run them at 60 frames per second comfortably. Um, it can also do VR at a competent level. Let's say, uh, it's entry level VR. So you're not going to have all of the graphics settings turned all the way up. But at the same time, VR games right now are still in this incubation period where they sort of aren't graphically mature because the hardware is too, so, so young and it would be unwise to put too much effort into the graphics at this point. Um, And results are incredibly good. This seems right now like it is the go-to graphics card if you are on a budget. Um, And performance is completely off the charts. Um, Today, actually, um, NVIDIA announced their card which competes with this. I believe it is the GTX 1060. I don't remember because there has been so little time since the announcement of the card that I literally just read up on it before we started recording um but that is basically nvidia's response to the card it is apparently not quite as good as the rx 480 but it gives us a little peek at what we can expect from uh playstation neo uh what is notable about all these cards is we were debating whether or not this would allow for true 4k gaming and i said there's no way they're going to be doing actual real 4k gaming on a graphics card with the specs it was rumored to have and if you go by the results that people are getting with 4K rendering on these graphics cards, it looks very, very unlikely that we are going to be seeing that. It sounds much more likely to actually be possible on the Xbox One Project Scorpio, which we did not mention because there has been a lot of stuff that happened to d 3 and we just didn't have the time to jam it in as follow-up into the previous episodes. Um, but you can go research that on your own if you're interested. Um, so, if there is a compelling vr story on the xbox family um we may actually be seeing the tides turn in microsoft's favor which would be pretty interesting as a story
0: wow well, no seriously that's pretty interesting yeah and hopefully it will maybe kind of help microsoft to kind of become more relevant this
1: generation i mean they announced last year i think that um Oculus was going to be compatible with Xbox, and then they sort of never, ever mentioned it ever again. Um, But sort of reading through the tea leaves, you can basically imply that Project Scorpio is not only going to be the 4K gaming machine that is going to wow people off their feats, but it's also going to be that machine that can handle VR through Oculus. Um, So I can't wait to see how that turns out maybe in a couple months next year. We'll see. So that is it for my follow-up
0: wow so now let's jump into japanese home console
1: yeah so before i actually talk about the topic itself uh a few housekeeping notes uh, first of all this topic was suggested to me by a good friend of mine encore stage eight months ago uh during a stream i did for a game called downwell which is my favorite game of last year um and he had said on the stream Uh, because I was talking about how Downwell looked very influenced by Japanese home computers of the 80s. And he said, you should do an episode on that for Limitless Possibility. And I sort of put it off for a while because I know a lot about the games that came out on those systems, but I don't know that much about the hardware. So this was sort of the incentive for me to actually go and research all of that stuff and give a compelling story and narrative to what went on with these computers in the 80s. Uh, and the other thing is, you're going to find out to what a crazy degree Japan was living in a completely different technological bubble during the 80s than we were with regards to home computers. And I will also try to explain the reasons for that. Uh, the other thing that is scaring me a little bit is that yesterday, in about 30 minutes, I wrote 1,500 words of notes on this topic, which probably means that the only logical conclusion you can come to is that I'm doing copious amounts of speed. This is not the case. Um, trust me, but I have a lot of content and I'm really worried that this is going to be like a six hour episode or something, so I'm going to try to be reasonable and not linger on things too much like I am right now so let's get right into it
0: <laughs> um, Yeah, I, I did tell you offline, and I'll repeat it here if I start to kind of like do like punching nose in the microphone, and no I'm not trying to punch the microphone, I'm just like semi-falling asleep and hitting my ale my head accidentally so that would be your end
1: and my laptop right now has six hours and 26 hours of uh six hours and 26 minutes of battery left so let's not take our time to a little too much okay so the big reason that uh, interest in japanese home computers is so high recently is that nostalgia for it is really really high um there was a store that opened in akihabara which is the Uh, nerd district of Tokyo, uh, focusing entirely on Japanese home computers and their game lineups. It's called Beep, and strangely enough, you wouldn't think this for a retro computer store, but it has lines every weekend before it opens of people who want to get into the store. That is how much appreciation there is for these old computers and their games. Um... And at the same time, what I'm finding very strange from a Western perspective of of things is that artists who've never grown up in an environment where these kinds of machines were available to them are identifying strongly with the art style and aesthetic choices that were made during that era and are being heavily influenced by them. And a good example of this is um, last week or two weeks ago, I forget exactly when, uh, there was a video game called Valhalla that was released on PC, Mac, and Vita, I think, which is a strange selection of
0: platforms. Did you say a game on Vita?
1: Yes. It's an indie game, but it's still a game. Um, Wow. I'm
0: super impressed.
1: And it is a cyberpunk bartending game, which is heavily inspired by games on the PC-98, which is one of the Japanese home computers that is really big. So I want to talk about four Japanese home computers. Um, I'm going to talk about the MSX. I'm going to talk about uh, sharp x68000 i'm going to talk about fm towns from fujitsu and of course you can't forget the necpc98 have you ever heard about any of these computers before that sounds like a no it
0: was a no indeed a silent no
1: yeah i'm gonna have to not edit that one out that's gonna be really hard okay so uh,
0: by the way regarding those is it me or it seems to me that it's like all of those names are kind of code names and not names
1: they signed a little. They sound a little bit cyberpunk. Um, there are some details that I can go into for a little bit uh, of each one, but um, yeah, they they sound like space age names, and that's sort of to go with the aesthetic that Japan was using for technological things in the eighties. Put X everywhere. Put twenty one everywhere because it sounds cool. Uh, put future in it. Uh, later on, we're going to talk about <laughs> the. Uh, I think. Wait uh, I can't yeah MSX turbo R is the name of a computer which sounds like a car uh, So of course yeah the,
0: the trend of putting turbo on uh, on computer's name
1: yeah, not just turbo turbo R. that's some Ooh. hardcore shit here. Um, so let's start with MSX. MSX uh, the MS in MSX actually stands for, stands for Microsoft. Uh, fun fact.
0: What? <laughs> yes. Okay, that starts to be interesting for real.
1: Yeah. So the MSX is a standardized PC architecture, very similar to how x86 came to be. Um, but it came out way before x86 was actually a thing. And um, MSX was released worldwide uh, briefly, but it sort of only took off in Japan and to a lesser degree in Europe and I believe South America. It's sort of... It's sort of like Sega, where Sega was really big in America and tiny little bit in like Brazil and Europe, and then Japan, Sega was basically irrelevant outside of the arcades. It's sort of one of those weird flukes where something is really popular somewhere and doesn't exist elsewhere. Um, It was released around the same time as the the Nintendo Famicom, which we know here in the West as the Nintendo Entertainment System, but it offered a higher quality gaming experience, and it lied sort of in the middle of what was possible on consoles and in the arcade in 1983, which is quite a long time ago. Uh, Surprisingly enough, MSX machines continued to be produced until 1995. Um, Although, (laughs) if you actually look at the specs for the MSX... There's not a big delta between 1983 and 1995. The original MSX ran at three megahertz. Okay. How many megahertz do you think the 1995 MSX ran at? The MSX Turbo R, of course.
0: (laughs) Okay. So I would say let's start at three. Let's add at least five megahertz for the turbo name (laughs) and maybe a sixth one. For the R letter, so I would say six three nine.
1: You're saying nine total? Yes. Uh no, that's actually a little low ball. Uh it was fourteen megahertz MSX Turbo R in nineteen ninety-five.
0: Okay, so my calculation were maybe a bit off. Maybe the R c- uh, counted for maybe like three or four megahertz, so it would be a bit more close.
1: But like in comparison, the rest of the industry was starting to touch the hundreds of megahertz.
0: Yeah. <laughs> at that and- time. <laughs> Yeah, that's what I recall. Like, the early 90s was, like, we used
1: started to use, like,
0: megahertz in the hundreds.
1: Yeah. Um, So, it was not a big jump, big dramatic jump from 1983 to 1995, and unsurprisingly, that was sort of part of (laughs) its demise. Um, There were 9 million MSX devices sold in Japan alone. If you compare that to the Apple II, the Apple II only sold about 6 million worldwide, which is less than how much MSXs were sold in Japan alone, which makes you think, why don't we actually know anything about the MSX? Um, And that's a little bit of an overstatement because we do know stuff about the MSX because of the games that came out on it. Um, Many Konami and Hudson Soft series got their start on the MSX, including fan favorite Metal Gear started on MSX. Um, And a lot of other big Konami series, while they didn't, begin on the MSX got really good ports or had the definitive home version released on MSX, which is why it was recorded in people's brains that Konami and Hudson were basically the the MSX developers. And there was high adoption from basically all of the Japanese developers at the time. I'm just noting down Konami and Hudson because they're particularly notable to me. Um and just before I close out this MSX thing uh, for a couple of years, uh, in the, I want to say end of the two thousands and early 2010s, uh, you had a lot of MSX nostalgia going on. Uh, there were MSX games being re-released on Nintendo virtual console for the Wii and Wii U, uh, in Japan and MSX games were getting remakes all of a sudden because people were feeling really, really nostalgic for this console that they grew up with. Um, and I think that's pretty cool. Uh, one of the big games that got a remake was La Mulana, which is not technically an MSX game, but it it was a game that was developed at the time in 2005 to emulate the MSX style. What would happen if we took everything we know about games today and developed a game with the same restraints as the MSX? That's how the original La Lamulana La came out. And now there's Lamulana EX, which is the remake, which is available on, I believe, PlayStation Vita, maybe PS4. There's second Vita mentioned. Wow. Ser-
0: seriously, I think this episode will be like kind of the v- Vita revival or something.
1: I don't think so this uh, episode has well actually there's another mention of the Vita later I just <gasps> noticed goodness <laughs> we might have wow. a hat trick
0: I, I think I need we need a counter now the number of times we've mentioned the Vita the Vita in one episode
1: what someone should do is they should count how many times we've mentioned the Vita and then go down, uh, donate to Games Done Quick on Twitch uh, while it's still open uh, which it won't be when this episode is out so maybe not go give money to charity based on how many times we mentioned the Vita Um, I mentioned the MSX not because it's particularly interesting, but because it sets the scene well for the next home computer on my list, which is the Sharp X6800. Uh, as you may have guessed, uh, well, I don't know about it. Well, that too, but the 6800 (laughs) in X6800 refers to the Motorola 6800 processor, which was also used for the original Macintosh. Fun fact. Hmm.
0: Yeah. But it was, um, if I, if I recall correctly, there was a processor pretty popular. Uh, yeah, the I era, think the original whatever.
1: Genesis used it as well. Yeah, the it was used Genesis. everywhere. Yeah. Um, so the reason I made that transition from the MSX to the X6800 is pretty simple. Um, MSX was sort of the home PC for mainstream Japanese game developers to put out their games on. And X6800 basically built on that and went with it. So. Uh MSX was heavily supported by Konami and Hudson. Both of those carried over to the X6800, making some really great games for the platform, uh, including what is maybe the best version of Castlevania 1 ever made. Um Hudson is a little strange because they even made the operating system for the X6800, which I know very little about, unfortunately, Uh, but it's called Human 68K, which is the name of the, pro- uh, the operating system, which is very strange. <laughs> It does
0: sound strange indeed.
1: Um, yeah. um, One of the cool things about the X6800 is that it's very technically similar to the hardware that was used for Capcom's CPS arcade board. Um, And the CPS is a very important board because it is home to a lot of the Capcom classic games, including Street Fighter II. Um, and at the time, arcade perfect ports were unheard of, basically, because it, you never had, really, a home computer computer that had the same specs as an arcade machine because it would be so freakishly expensive. But somehow, X6800 had basically equivalent hardware, so you got arcade-perfect ports of games on this device, and they were amazing. Um, Unfortunately, the X6800 had a sort of strange requirement that all of their controllers only have two buttons, which is sort of a problem because Street Fighter is a six-button game. (laughs) Uh so what was the solution? Well they made a dongle that you could hook up to it which magically added support for six button controllers that the Genesis used. So you had to buy a Sega Genesis c- controller for your X6800. That was sort of odd. Um but it worked. Um another cool thing about the X6800 is there were all of these games by these companies that made games with really good music. But how could you one-up that? Well, you could one-up that by supporting external MIDI synthesizer modules, which you could plug into the computer, and the computer would output the MIDI signal into the synthesizer, and you could hear it with whatever synthesizer module you owned. Uh, Roland, actually, in particular, uh, was one of the big names because they had official support in the hardware for certain of their MIDI synthesizer modules, which I can't imagine was something that you would reasonably buy in the 1980s unless you were actually making music with your computer. Like, I don't see the average gamer going down to the music shop and saying, hey, can you get me a MIDI synthesizer so I can listen to Castlevania tracks on a different instrument set? Um, sounds a little bit weird, but nowadays of course the collection the collector scene for the x6800 is completely nuts and you have people collecting every single media synthesizer that was supported on the system at the time which is strange as fuck um
0: yeah it is strange as fuck but though i can just imagine you having fun like just playing with the synthesizer to just kind of change the music output from the console i'm sure it was like a funny game by itself too
1: Yeah, and if you go on YouTube, of course, you can always do some search searches for X6800 games piped through various media synthesizers, and you get really cool results sometimes. And, fun fact, if you buy Castlevania Chronicles on PlayStation 1, you can actually play a port of the X6800 uh, version of Castlevania, which, as I said previously, is the best version of Castlevania out there. And, as a bonus, you can actually switch between the various Roland synthesizer modules uh, before entering the game. So you can just select one. And if you play Arrange Mode, which you should probably play because it significantly tones down the very, very, very difficult parts of the game, um, you can also get a very special arrangement (laughs) of the soundtrack by friend of the show Soda Fujimori. Um, So that is cool. Um, Of course, what if you aren't rich and can't buy Roland synthesizer? ...to plug into your PC when you play games. I mean, I can imagine that a lot of people had that experience. Luckily for you, there was an onboard Yamaha YM2151 sound chip. Um, And we are going to talk a lot about Yamaha sound chips a little later. So I'm going to leave it at that for now. Now let's talk about what is perhaps the most strange of all of these machines. The Fujitsu FM Towns. This computer... I knew basically nothing about, aside from it exists, and last year when I was in Japan, I saw a copy of Windows 95 for FM Towns lying on the floor at my friend's apartment. Okay, that's kind of, okay. My, my friend's dad is a big fan of retro PCs, apparently, so that is why it was on the floor. <laughs> um, but we are going to learn a bunch, because I learned so much about this computer. This computer is innovative as fuck. And nobody knows about it. So let's get started. Um, this is the follow-up to another Fujitsu line of computers you have never heard about called the FM7, which was apparently very, very popular in the 80s, but it was quickly losing sales to the NEC competition, the PC-8801, which is the uh, little, uh, well, the older brother to the PC-98, which we're going to talk about a little later. Um, the big reason that they were losing sales to the PC-88 is not necessarily because the machine was better, but because they had a ton of software developed for it. And Fujitsu decided that they needed to make a big move to have compelling software on their computers, because if they had software, even if the hardware isn't as good, it would move the hardware. And the first bet towards this direction was to create uh, another system architecture, similar to MSX and all of that stuff, which is inspired by, but not exactly, x86 and DOS, um, and they called it the FMR50 system. Uh, FMR50 was particularly popular in office buildings in Japan for boring office-type stuff. You're doing spreadsheets, you're doing word processing, that kind of basic stuff. They had that market nailed. But they said, now we need to make our next big bet to really blow the PC-88 out of the water. And that is, enhance the visual and audio capabilities of the system. Bet big on multimedia. And already there that might sound familiar to a lot of Mac users who lived in the nineties because that is sort of the bet willingly or not that Apple took in the nineties was we're going to bet big on multimedia um and we'll see how their stories differ um f m towns launched in nineteen eighty nine and continued to be available at retail until nineteen ninety seven but the f m towns is very, very strange, so at no point in time for this system uh, were hard drive standard. So hard drives basically were an option at all times. Uh, Well, I'm not even sure if the earliest model supported hard drives, but they never came with the device. Basically, you had to install them yourself. Um, Luckily, the system was expandable. Here is something that will blow your mind for a 1989 computer. The entire operating system was loaded every time you booted from a single speed CD-ROM drive.
0: Uh, what?
1: Yeah, the system booted off a CD-ROM drive in 1989.
0: Okay. Now, if
1: you want to compare that to other systems that booted off of CD-ROM, System 7 was the first one to do it on the Mac. That came out two years later. Windows 95 was the first one to do it for Windows, and that came out seven years later. And in 1989, Fujitsu basically put out this machine that nobody knows about that was booting off of CD-ROM every single boot. I don't know what to say, to be honest. That's
0: interesting and
1: surprising. And it gets even more interesting but when you delve was into it, the details.
0: Was it the first machine that does that? As far as also- I can
1: tell, it was the first computer to boot off of CD-ROM, to be able to boot the entire operating system off of CD-ROM.
0: Hmm, impressive.
1: Yes. Um, now, what was the operating system that this computer used? Um, well, you had basically two paths you could take and unfortunately this is sort of what led to the downfall of the system as we'll talk about in a little bit uh it was possible to run either windows 3.0 3.1 or 95 or you could run towns os of course everybody loves towns os um proprietary proprietary operating system made by fujitsu for the fm Towns specifically towns os is fucking amazing man (laughs) okay <laughs> compared that... to like the max at the time the apis it had are crazy um
0: you, you know i'm a little bit worried a little bit I, I,
1: i'm not saying that it was necessarily the best system to develop for it. i'm just saying that the apis that were available to you were unparalleled bit compared to what was available on other platforms remember that at the time basically uh i think think system six was basically what was out on Macs at the time uh i'm not very good at the uh, the software uh schedule side of things before system seven because it predates my life Um, (laughs) (laughs) but i'm pretty sure system six was what was what was out at the time um and towns os had rich apis for huge amounts of graphics modes um as as i can tell and maybe i'm wrong about this uh display resolution switching only was introduced to the mac in system 7 i'm not entirely sure but that's sort of what it sounds like um blitting sprites uh it had a rich sprite api which for the most part like the mac didn't really have because it was never really focusing on games it had graphics apis but it didn't really have the concept of sprites because again a lot of japanese home computers were sort of built with this pre-existing notion that they're going to be used for games uh and the mac sort of never really cared about games and that is sort of the world that we live in right now um it had and
0: you'll uh, be right by the way system 6 got released in 88 and last release was in 91 yeah so that was for the timeline
1: 6.0.8 was basically the best classic mac os before os 8 and um but i couldn't remember when it came out um, in
0: April '91, and it was the so it was when running. I was
1: born, basically. Yes. Nice. Yes. yes no yes. wonder the best version of classic came oh, out my during. Goodness. This okay, time.
0: Co- go on, go <laughs> okay. on.
1: Um, yeah. So, Towns of OS also had rich audio APIs. It had support for gamepads, which again, like this is the sort of stuff that was coming around in API support, uh, official API support around like Windows '95 and all that stuff, and this was way ahead. Um and of course CD audio because the town's town's OS uh the FM Towns had a CD drive, of course, so why not use it to play CD audio? Um so one of the things that a lot of people have probably noticed by now is wait a second, DOS doesn't support CD ROM. How did the OS boot? And the answer is um there was a minimal installation of DOS in the machine's ROM that had a hardcore hard-coded CD-ROM driver, so congratulations. There was always a fallback that could boot off of CD-ROM, but that was literally the only thing that that installation of DOS could do, is basically bootstrap the boot from CD-ROM. And it it was really burnt into the ROM. There was nothing else you could do with it. Um, Now, the other question that comes up, of course, is if the OS is loaded from CD, how do you play games which come on CD? Are you constantly swapping disks back and forth? Um. Well, no. Uh, One of the things that you could do is use a boot floppy with a tiny DOS install that would basically contain the same driver as the minimal installation on the thing and then could basically just read the resources from your game and run that off the CD-ROM.
0: Yeah, so at this point, the floppy drive would just be too bootstrap the cd the game on the cd and that would be
1: it. i mean the difference is that the cd rom wouldn't necessarily contain the operating system the complete operating system it would just contain the subset of the operating system that was needed to run the game and then the game would run off the cd but the operating system was entirely on the floppy if you get what i mean um yes. but fujitsu also had a different idea which is well let's license a bare bones install of Towns OS that game developers could just put on their game CDs and then you could just put the game CD right in and boot directly off of it. I mean, you can do that because CDs are huge. Nobody would ever use an entire CD for a game. Uh, until they did. Well, until they did, of course. But why not use that free space for something useful like booting directly off of the drive? So you could do that. Um, but- and it was incredibly successful for them. Hmm.
0: I do have a question regarding Windows compatibility, though. Yes. So you name tons of things that worked pretty, like innovative for its uh, time, and it seems that Fujitsu also added Windows support. Or am I getting this wrong?
1: So the hardware was similar enough to x86 that they could basically do very little and port it to the FM towns. Um, it's not Fujitsu themselves that did the port; it's still Microsoft. Um, and they did this for a bunch of Japanese home computers in general. Um, FM Towns is not the only one. We're going to talk about PC98 next, which also had this. Um,
0: okay, so that's good, Dan, because I didn't saw any. I didn't see any incentive from Fujitsu to do that, especially with all of the innovation they had put in their own proprietary OS at that time. Why would they port? They would. Why would they support Windows, which was not like having support natively for half of the feature they wanted.
1: You're sort of getting ahead of schedule, but yes, I I agree with all of those points, and we'll talk about it in a little bit. Um, Okay, sure. But before we do that, I want to talk about uh, graphics modes. This is something that a lot of people never really had to consider over here, but Japan, again, has very particular requirements because of its language. Um, So you could mix resolutions, display resolutions, with the FM towns. This allowed you to have the core gameplay run uh, on a layer of its own with a low resolution so that it's playable at a reasonable frame rate. But if you have dialogue, for example, in your game, um, you want the Japanese characters to be readable. And you basically have two options. You have use higher resolution or display really, really, really big characters. Um, and the trade-off here was, well, you can run one layer at a low resolution, one layer at a higher resolution... And as long as your display is capable of handling the higher resolution, we can display the low-resolution game and the high-resolution text at the same time, whereas other systems basically forced you into one resolution for everything. Um, And that made it a lot harder for developers to basically choose which one they wanted to deal with. So I thought that was a really good solution to the problem. Um, FM Towns, it was a very capable system, but as most of the Steam... At the time, went behind generic x86 PCs, which were becoming more and more of this platform building in the background. And all of that x86 stuff basically was generic. It had no specific hardware extensions like the FM Towns, which had great hardware, uh, but that was tied with what the operating system could do that others couldn't necessarily, Uh FM Towns lost its uniqueness amongst home computers, and its advantages didn't really get to shine because they weren't really supported on Windows. And we will sort of delve a little deeper into the aftermath of all of these computers in a little bit. Um, but that is sort of how it died. It did reach a niche status very similarly to the Mac, as I made the comparison earlier, in the dark ages of Apple, because it was markedly better at multimedia than any of its competitors. And honestly, I looked at videos of Towns OS on YouTube. The music software that came with this PC, oh my god. Um, I mean, like, GarageBand is a big deal because it does a lot of stuff. But this was like the garage band of its day, and especially considering, uh, and we'll talk about this in the F- 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 PC98, the the hardware that was being used for audio in these PCs was often on the bleeding edge of what was possible with digital synthesizer technology in general. It was a big, big deal for music, um, in, in particular, and I think that's why a lot of emblematic music that a lot of people love from that era comes from. Either Yamaha sound chips, because they were using those PCs and in certain consoles, or from those home computers. Before we move on to the PC-98, do you have anything else to say? Nope. No, no, no. Okay, PC-98. We're actually doing pretty well, because this is the last one. Wow, that's good. <laughs> we are burning through these notes. Um, so, I sort of established a theme for the past two computers. Uh, X68000 was mainstream gaming. FM Towns was multimedia. PC-98 is weird niche and indie games. <laughs> this is sort of the machine. And it was immensely successful um, in general. PC-98 is the defining PC platform of the 80s in Japan. It took upwards of 60% market share uh, in the oh, 80s wow. in okay. That's Japan. Big. Yeah, it's pretty big. It, if you think of a PC in the 80s, most Japanese people are thinking of PC-98 machines. Um so it, it was a huge deal. It launched in 1982, was discontinued in 2003. This means if you what? actually go look up the spec sheets, unlike the MSX, which basically went from 3 megahertz to 14, this went from a 5 megahertz 8086 processor to the last model, which had a 443 megahertz Celeron processor.
0: Wow, okay. That, that's a big history.
1: Yeah, it had a long, long life. Um PC98, much like FM Towns, deviates a little bit from what is traditionally called IBM PC compatible, uh, st- stuff. It has different bus structure for certain things. IO ports are addressed differently. All of that stuff doesn't really matter. Memory mapping is very different, um, which is sort of the big thing. PC98 is perhaps most well known for its sound chip, uh, which is legendary. Yamaha YM2203 FM Synthesizer. It's also known under the OPN name, uh, and there are lots of other OPN chips which are based off of that initial chip. Now, one of the interesting things to consider is that, again, this computer launched in 1982. The Yamaha DX7, which is the first commercially successful FM synthesizer, the musical instrument, not the chip, was released in 1983. And the DX7 is single-handedly responsible for basically the entire sound of the 1980s. (laughs) (laughs) Like, if you listen to a song from the 80s that was popular, chances are there was a DX7 playing in the background somewhere. Um, And because it's an FM synthesizer, it can be programmed to have a wide variety of different sounds. But, DX, uh, well, FM synth in general, but the DX7 has a very distinct sound that you can recognize. Like the bass in uh, Bizarre Love Triangle. Uh, or stuff like that, is just sounds that people associate with that era. And that was possible with the DX7. It was also possible with ym 22 3 or other Yamaha sound chips at the time. So, to think that you could buy a home computer in 1982 that could play sounds that would become emblematic of the entire decade, a year before it's available to actual musicians, is crazy. <laughs> it makes no sense. But it happened. Um Another fun fact is that many game soundtracks from the 80s were composed on PC-98s because the YM2608, which is a sound chip that later models of PC-98 would adopt, um, it's a six-channel FM synth and it is very, very similar to the chip in, funnily enough, the FM towns, uh, Sega Genesis, and Sega arcade boards such as the Play System 18, and System 32. So this means game developers were getting those PC-98s and using them to do their job every day um, to make music for video games. On top of that, uh, there's an added perk to all of this, which is the game library that the PC-98 was attracting. It was attracting big RPGs. Um, Falcom, which is the company that does Ys, they do Xanadu, they do Dragon Slayer. I always mix up the dragon name things because they're so generic. Um, But they made a game that starts with Dragon, and it's really popular, and it's a series. Um, Falcom basically built their brand on PC-88 and PC-98. A lot of other RPGs were on that system, too many to list. Visual novels, also very, very big. And what's in common with RPGs and visual novels, these are long games. They are very text-heavy. And if you have long, text-heavy games, you can't really rely on short 30-second looping music like, the nes could because they were mostly action games um people needed to put more effort into making longer compositions that can convey the emotional palette of the game that they're composing for and arguably no composer did it better than you umemoto uh which unfortunately died in 2011 at the age of 37 which is fucking crazy um
0: 37 that's pretty young to be honest
1: yes yeah, uh, if you are a modern gamer and you haven't played PC-98 at all, which is probably most people, um, but uh, and you have a an interest in weird Japanese games, uh, Umemoto is probably best known for his work on cave shooters um, in the 2000s. Um, if you do not know anything about cave, sorry, you probably haven't heard his music. Um, but two of his biggest works from that era, uh, the PC-98 era, were... Eve Burstair from 1995, and my personal favorite, You Know, A Girl Who chants Love at the End of the, ba- of the World in 1996, which were two incredibly innovative visual novels that have, I mean, they're legendary games in their own right, but they were made even better by their soundtracks. And once you've listened to those game soundtracks, you immediately get the yamaha fm sense sound you get the pc 98 sound that trademark sound and if you enjoy that sound well unfortunately you are ruined because game soundtracks are going to have to work really really hard to top that bar of quality and really this entire episode is sort of an stupid excuse for me to talk about you know a lot because it is a game i absolutely love um
0: so all of this only for a game
1: I've been looking for ways to jam know into this show for a really long time. Okay. Sure. Sure. So I'm going to talk about this game. I love a bunch. Uh, it's the first visual novel I'm aware of. Well, first of all, what is a visual novel? A bunch of people know this already, but just to make sure um, it is a game where you read a lot, um, generally accompanied with visuals. That was what makes a visual novel. Uh, it's sort of similar to point and click adventure games uh, from the 80s that were popular on home computers over here except there is much more emphasis on the text and much less emphasis on the pointing and clicking um and oftentimes they will make you choose paths or something or move around an environment Uh, if you've played phoenix Wright investigation mode is basically well even even sort of in trial it's a visual novel yeah
0: i would say like phoenix right as a whole is mostly closed they call it action visual novel game, but still it closely follows this genre.
1: Yeah. Um, uh, similarly, um, what's it called? The thing that everything that everybody is fucking playing right now, and I can't remember the name, uh, Zero Time Dilemma, and whatever the name of the actual series that game is a part of, is another visual novel, which is incredibly popular right now. I think Danganronpa is technically a visual novel as well. I haven't played it, so can't say. Um, What's specifically interesting about this game and why I bring up Zero Time Dilemma right now is that Yuno is the first visual novel, I'm aware, that breaks the fourth wall and outwardly states that this entire game is a a tree of possibilities because it introduces very early on in the game... This premise that you have a time, tra- time travel device and the interface to the time travel device is exactly that, the map of the possibilities of the entire game. Um, so it allows, oh, you, wow. it allows you to time travel back and forth and it's impossible to get all of the endings in the game without jumping across various timelines to collect items that don't exist in other timelines to use them in other timelines. And the map gives you a very good indication of where you should probably be warping to because there's this empty spot on the map, really. Uh, sort of like a good Castlevania game in the EGA Days would do. Um,
0: so in, in a way, you know that you use you did all of the path when you see all of the map.
1: Yeah, basically. Well, you also know because you actually get the true ending when you get all of the map completed because you've gotten every possibility imaginable. Um, but yeah... It, and I think that UI in particular, um, I think it was called ADNS, but I can't remember what it stands for because as usual, like Japanese people will make up these crazy acronyms that mean ridiculous things that don't actually mean anything. Um, but yeah, it's a part of the game system and it jumped to my mind because somebody was talking to me about zero, uh, zero time dilemma. And I do not actually know anything about the story of the game, so I won't spoil it, but it actually used the map very similarly to, you know, and I was like, wow, a lot of people are playing a game that was probably inspired by Uno and aren't even aware of it. Um, of course, I can't talk about PC-98 games without talking about sex scenes because this is Japan, of course. Uh, no, there is no shortage of games on the PC-98 with sex scenes. Um, but Uno is different from a lot of them. I mean, actually, most of them. Because it uses sexuality a lot less as a means of titillation. Although, the protagonist's nickname is Walking Libido, so there's that. Um, but <laughs>
0: Okay, that, that kind of breaks your argument. And okay, there's also continue. no
1: shortage of, of panty shots if you want to look at those. But in the grand scheme of things, remember that even today, Japan is way behind on the whole feminism thing. So, playing in 80s games, it, it's hard to feel good about a lot of the things that were there. But fair in fair. very, very vague terms... It uses sexual, uh, sexuality a lot less as a means of titillation, a lot more as a way of adding authenticity to relationships and moments of vulnerability between characters in the game, which is not something you can say about most games today. So it was sort of ahead of its time, even though it was also very behind on the times at the same time. Um, and uh, now I'm going to talk a little bit more about graphics because artists often talk about how restraints can lead to better arts. If you impose certain restraints on yourself, uh, you think in more creative ways than if you just do the thing that seems obvious to you. Um, and the average PC 98 hardware over that entire run supported 16 colors picked from a palette of 4,096 colors. Despite this artists are insane and managed to create absolutely amazing pixel art. And while it might not be the best pixel art of all time, um, there is some debate as to what that might be. I seem to be very, um partial to snk games of the early 2000s because snk games believe it or not uh were basically running on the same hardware for like 15 years <laughs> maybe a little more than that and they basically made games in the early 2000s that looked absolutely amazing but were running on like 15 year old hardware um so that might be the best pixel art of all time in quotes but, given the restraints that they were working with, PC-98 is some of the best pixel art of all time. Um, and Yuno, in particular, has pixel art that aged extremely, extremely well. Um, and I, I, you can say the same about a lot of other PC-98 games, but, of course, like some of the more indie stuff is going to be lower quality. Um, Yuno is sort of this, in Japanese they call it a kamige, a god game, because it is literally like perfect in every way, except it's probably not, but it's perfect in every way. Um, And basically, the only complaint I can really come up with for the pixel art, and you know, if you actually go through and look at the galleries online of every single image in that game, there is basically only one scene that is bad. And the only reason that that one scene is bad is because they're in a very strange environment and they ran out of colors that looked like skin tone for the lighting that they were in. (laughs) Otherwise... Everything else in that game is really, really good. Um, so that's all I'm going to say about Yuno. Um, I did say I was going to jam another Vita reference. So know Remake oh. is coming out this year. Um, on the Vita. On the Vita and on the PS4. Um, another game that I mentioned earlier with uh, Ryu and music in it, uh, Eve Burst Error. It got a remake on PC and Vita earlier this year. So there's the fourth Vita mention of the episode. Uh, and it has... Um, it has basically remixed versions of the music. Although, unfortunately, that one is not as good.
0: I would like to say that it's pretty funny that we are giving the Vita rebirth by talking about old Japanese consoles. Well, That's I'm
1: going to jam a fifth reference because I just remembered the pre-order bonus for the Vita version of Yuno is actually a remake. Well, not a remake, but they're re-releasing the original version of Yuno for the PC-98 on the Vita and on PS4, which... I am honestly like, I I was considering pre ordering the game before that, but that's just sold me on the pre order completely. I don't care that the exchange rate is complete garbage anymore. Um, The only problem, of course, is that basically the the Uno remake's been delayed two years. I've been waiting a really long time for this remake to come out. Um, So I'm very much looking forward to November when this game comes out finally after two years of waiting.
0: Hopefully, it won't be delayed again.
1: Yeah. Um, But anyway. Compared to the EVE Burst, our remake, which sort of looked a little bit rough at times, um, this one looks a lot, lot better and is being done by people who are like the leading visual novel developers in Japan right now. So <laughs> that's sort of reassuring. Uh, unfortunately, the company that made you know, which is called Elf, uh, shut down last year after their very last game. In fact, the way that they announced that they were shutting down the company, which is very, very sad is at the end of the credits they said thank you for the last 27 years and then they sort of once somebody posted that to twitter they changed the banner on their website to sort of like be the last hurrah of that brand and elf is no more um and i can't say i'm very sad because a lot of their games were just incredibly incredibly perverted things that are not actually particularly fun to play but uh, whatever it's still sort of sad to see the company that made a game i love so much sort of disappear <laughs> all of a sudden um this is where my notes end but i do want to add a short a uh, short epilogue to this whole story which is what the fuck happened to these computers
0: oh that would be interesting because that would be my first question
1: well before we talk about what the fuck happened to these computers we need to talk about what the fuck caused these computers to exist in the first place which is dos doesn't support japanese <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like a good reason to all of a sudden spawn a bunch of weird computers with very different things. So and you know
0: what? I think it explains a lot of thing happening in Japan.
1: Yeah, a, a lot of things especially when technology was getting started. The very fact that the language is so different caused completely different prioritization because they couldn't actually get their language on screen at all because DOS didn't support it. Um, By DOS, I mean IBM DOS. Um, And sort of what ended all of these computers' heyday is, well, two things. First of all, IBM PC architecture sort of came in right around the same time that IBM released DOS V, and DOS V, the V stands for VGA, uh, that should give you a hint of what it does, it allowed Japanese text to be displayed via VGA resolution displays, Um, which means suddenly x86 becomes a viable platform for Japanese users and developers. And that is when everybody started rushing to that because not only did it have the entire base of software that was being developed overseas, which, I mean, if you're playing, uh, if you're buying a PC-98 or you're buying um, an FM Towns or whatever, you are basically restricting yourself to only running software that was developed within Japan because literally no one else has these machines. (laughs) Whereas now, if you have DOS-V, you can support all of the um, applications that were being developed for dos for many years leading up to the release of DOSV outside of Japan. Plus, now you can start developing towards that. And then when they added um, support for Windows 95 on PC 98 and on FM Towns, that sort of killed them even more, because you basically had this choice between you can stay on this operating system that has very little software being developed for it, that has all of these cool innovative new features. Or you can go to Windows, which has all the software in the world. <laughs> And that basically meant that all of the FM towns and the PC-98s that were being made to run Windows were functionally equivalent to IBM PCs. They lacked all of the features that were unique to them, and they were maybe two or three times the price. And So no,
0: no good reason to buy them in the end.
1: Basically, unless you wanted software that was specifically made for those devices, you had no reason to buy them anymore at all. And overnight, basically the plug was pulled out from these platforms and everything went towards x86 and dos v and eventually windows and the only reason you would keep running those machines is if you already owned one and like you wanted to ride that wave until it basically died and i think it's incredibly sad because nowadays you don't really see that kind of weird computer sprouting out of nowhere because the language isn't supported because unicode is the thing that happens and don't get me wrong i absolutely love that i never have to fucking touch shift jis text encoding ever again um but <laughs> but at the same time the because unicode exists you aren't going to see weird computer ecosystems blooming in china weird computer ecosystems blooming in korea that have these really strange unique and innovative things that maybe microsoft or apple aren't considering right now and to a certain extent um you see this playing out in open source and i should also mention uh there are bsd and linux ports for basically all of these machines so if you have one of them you can go run like fucking netbsd on there because netbsd runs on a toaster um but i mean it's still not going to have it's going to give you the same problem as windows basically it's not going to have that unique personality that made those platforms really interesting from the get-go and um i shouldn't close on this um we're also seeing nowadays because of the internet and all that stuff we're hearing about strange game consoles that nobody's ever heard of um low score boy is a YouTube channel from... I believe someone who is Taiwanese. Um, and most of his videos are in Taiwanese. So that's why I'm assuming. Um, but occasionally he'll make these videos. About like some Super Nintendo clone. That existed only in Taiwan. That nobody's ever heard of. And he shows like these ports. Or these rip-offs of games that we had in the West. That they never had. Because they had the system that bloomed out of nowhere. For this particular ecosystem. And now... Everyone all over the world is using the same stuff. Uh, the era of what people called the Gatake, the Galapagos cell phones in Japan, which were, like, for 10, 15 years, Japan had a completely insane cell phone ecosystem that we have only sort of heard rumblings about because we didn't live in that time. But, like, you could do crazy shit with cell phones in the early 2000s in Japan that we didn't get to do until, like, the iPhone basically came out and made an app platform for everyone.
0: Yeah, uh, and the most surprising, if I recall correctly, is most of them were either candy bar phones or flip phones. Yeah. And then you heard that people were, like, doing shopping online, buying online, every, like, in a way, not everything you can do with an iPhone, but most of the stuff you do with an iPhone now, you were able to do that, like, 10 years ago in Japan with flip phones and candy bar phones. Which is crazy.
1: And, still. and even when... Japan tries to create its own, uh, um, well, I'm not going to call this innovative because that would be giving it too much credit. But um, whenever Japan says the mainstream option is not the good option, we are going to develop our own technology, nine times out of 10, it fails catastrophically because now everyone is working on the same platforms across the entire planet that any attempt to deviate from those platforms sort of dies after a couple of years. And a great example of that is I wasn't expecting to talk about this but I'm going to do it do it very quickly. Uh NTT Docomo's Not Teribi. Uh Not Teribi was a service that they launched in 2012 when I went to Japan for the very first time and there were ads for it everywhere and they just announced that it's shutting down this this month. Um and the idea was okay, we're going to use special airwaves on our cell towers to distribute exclusive television shows for NTT Dogomo customers. Um, oh, my goodness! So, the first thing is this was right around the time that n t t Docomo got the iPhone, which of course will never fucking support this technology because it requires special hardware,
0: <laughs> so of course, because different airwaves,
1: yeah, and on top of that um nt Docomo, when they launched with the iPhone, basically iPhone took over the Japanese cell phone market um so that sort of killed it there with just that, but that's not all um the other thing is you're wondering well why are they just not streaming stuff over the internet instead of using special hardware? No one has ever really answered that question to me. Yeah, it seems to be some sort of lock in, but even then the worst thing of all of this is you had to pay a subscription fee to watch these shows, Of course, which very few people did. But if you have a subscription service, wouldn't it be more beneficial for it to be available everywhere and therefore stream (laughs) on the internet instead of using your weird, Hardware, which is only baked into maybe six phones a year, um, which are not necessarily the best smartphones that you are releasing. Um, so this technology completely flopped. Um, and it was one of those attempts to sort of do the Japanese thing and just bring up a weird thing here or there and see if it works. Uh, this one did not work. Uh, but I mean, I would still like to see them try these kinds of things because it, at least it's sort of funny when it fails <laughs> I hate to say it like that, but sometimes really genius things can come out of it. Like, as we keep mentioning every fucking episode, mobile payments, their mobile payment thing is not the same as the rest of the world, but guess what? They've had it for 11, uh, for like a fucking decade, uh, since 2001 and it works and it works better than what we're coming up right now with. Um, So, to a certain extent, I just want Japan to continue to be able to innovate in its little bubble and come up with weird stuff. And sometimes they fail and it's unfortunate or funny. And sometimes they have a hit and they run away with it. And in those cases, it would be nice that instead of having America being the central hub for all of technology innovation for the future, like it seems to be nowadays, that we can sort of have people all over the world contributing to the forefront of what is technological progress and that was totally not the conclusion i was expecting to end on today but let's go with that because it's amazingly positive and uh, it's been a really long time since we had a positive episode of this show
0: seriously i was about to say if you had something to add just keep it for the next episode we need to end on this
1: and amazingly we fit six hours of content into a one hour and six minute show
0: that's good. So, obviously, if you want to see all of those computers that Yannick talked about and get more information about them, you can go find our show notes on limitlesspossibility.net slash 43. 44. Also- it's 44. Really? Yes. No, I think it's 43.
1: Da, da 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 I am going on the website right now. Watch me. Doing I this. posted the last episode, by the way, so I think I would know. Oh, maybe I did a mistake, mistake. Yep. This is episode 44.
0: Okay, so forget what I just said, go to limitlesspossibilitynet slash 44. By the way, it's becoming a recurring theme that we forgot which number we are at right now. It's but been that's 20
1: episodes since the last time we did that.
0: Fair, but okay. Also, if you want to go and watch, the, uh, listen to this episode where Yannick or I did misspoke about the episode number you can go on the website at limitlesspossibility.net you can also keep keep yourself up to date with uh, our episodes and all of that stuff on your twitter on our twitter account at at limipo underscore podcast that's l-i-m-i-p-o underscore podcast you can also wait wait u-
1: big news um you should go follow us on twitter because we are going to be recording the next episode live on twitch
0: Hey, whoa, 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 wait! You're—I had the conclusion about that, and then—damn it! You're
1: breaking it. This is what happens when we don't write the script ahead of time.
0: Yeah, this is why this is this is why Limitless is so nice because we just wing it.
1: Yeah, but basically, as I said, you can go to our Twitter, follow us, and you will be notified when we will be recording live our next episode from an undisclosed location, and that is all I'm going to say.
0: Okay. So if you want to get those notifications, you can follow myself on Twitter at at Lucanouche, that's
1: L-U-C-C-O-N-O-U-S-H-E, and you can find Yannick at Sakurina, S-A-K-U-R-I-N-A.
0: And what I wanted to say about next episode is we we will be doing something different, but Yannick kind of spoiled it a bit, but that's
1: okay. Well, if you want people to tune in, I mean. (laughs) Fair, fair, but still. So yeah, we'll be seeing you uh, sometime over the next week or two. Exactly.
0: See you in maybe two weeks, maybe less.